0: Making a big change in life is scary. But know what's even scarier? Regret. Back in the 1980s, Prue Venables left the suburbs of Melbourne and a safe job in a science lab for the bright lights of London. Away from the expectations of her family, Prue had a new sense of freedom.
1: I felt I could just do whatever I wanted to because... I didn't have those restrictions on me. I started to see that people could make their own life. She studied
0: the flute. And then one evening, Prue sat down to her first
1: pottery class. I just thought, nah, this is what I really want. And suddenly I I had two jobs in potteries and was learning a whole lot of things. But I didn't feel that I was understanding how I could make work that belonged to me. That became a key thing I needed to do.
0: This is Object, a podcast about design and contemporary craft in Australia. I'm your host, Lisa Carl, from the Australian Design Centre. In Series 1, you'll meet the master people we call Living Treasures. What makes them a living treasure? What has driven them to a lifetime love of their craft? Is it the material, the process, or both? How do they contribute and advocate for the arts? And what's their advice for makers who follow in their footsteps? Let's meet living treasure and master potter, Prue Venables. Prue is one of Australia's most acclaimed ceramic artists. She has practised since 1977 with a demonstrated mastery of porcelain. Her work is in collections of major institutions in Australia and internationally. And Prue has mentored and taught generations of ceramic artists. The Australian Design Centre honoured Prue as a living treasure in 2019, and her living treasures exhibition tours until 2022. Prue Venables makes porcelain vessels like jugs and beakers, ladles and colanders that elevate humble domestic objects to exquisite works of art. They are smooth and elegant, with a minimal colour palette of white, metallic black and sometimes red. In this episode of Object, you'll hear how Prue went from a career in science to pottery. How three tiny porcelain jugs changed everything for her, and her controversial advice for new makers. Prue lives and works on the ancestral lands of the Jar Jar Wurrung people in central Victoria. We're meeting in Launceston, Tasmania on the traditional lands of the Stony Creek Nation where Prue's Living Treasures exhibition is showing at Design Tasmania.
1: Hi Prue. Hi Lisa. Prue, what was it about clay that drew you in? It's hard to explain it, but there's something about the material, just touching it. I just suddenly felt at home. I just knew I just knew it was what I wanted, and I had no idea what that meant, but I I just knew I had to do this. Mm. And I think I think you see that from time to time in makers, but I think it has to be in every professional musician because the work required is so great and the the sort of the wanting to do it, the need to do it—it becomes a visceral need. It's not just—it's not just something you think, "Oh, I'll go and make something today." Or it—it's not like that. It's doesn't mean you have to do it all the time. In somewhere in your system is this absolute visceral need to do it, and that—that's—that's. Uh, that's, I think that's what I identified when I first touched the clay. I didn't know what it meant, but I just felt this was where I felt good, and. I just had to work out how to do it and what it meant. I don't, I still don't really know what it means. <laughs> um, so you went to London with your flute, Prue,
0: and you came back to Australia Reporter. How did that come about?
1: Well, I, I'd been working in the zoology department after I finished my degree and doing laboratory work, basically, and also playing music as much as I could. And I just felt I wasn't satisfied I wasn't happy and so I decided that I wanted to learn the flute and I didn't feel that I could do it in in Australia because the pressures w- were on me from my family to do to be a scientist and so I just packed up my little backpack and and I went when I when I got to London I just I felt I could just do whatever I wanted to because I didn't have those restrictions on me. And so I started to see that people could make their own life. They could actually do something and and build a life themselves. And that really interested me, really enjoying that side of myself. And then I went to an evening class in pottery and I just thought, nah, this is what I really want. And so then after that, I started to try and find as many opportunities as I could to learn and to work out how to, how I could do it how I could discover as much as I could about about making pots and working with clay and suddenly I I had two jobs in potteries and was learning a whole lot of things but I I didn't feel that I was understanding how I could make work that belonged to me that became a key thing I needed to do
0: And then you went to study pottery at Harrow College
1: in London. I had to apply um, through the normal sort of procedures to, to to be an art student there. I had to have a um, folio of drawings, and I and I thought, well, <laughs> I can't draw. And then one of my old zoology friends happened to come and said, he said, well, yes, but you've spent years and years and years drawing things down in binocular microscope. Of course you can draw. So. That sort of encouraged me, and I did a drawing class for a year, and I made a folio, and then I went and applied. The teacher I had at that time, Helen Hattori, she was, she was a bit of a dragon and, and very controlling, but she had this emphasis on imagination, and so for the first year of her classes, you weren't allowed to use the wheel. So I was always looking, sort of yearningly over at the over at the other side of the room, and <laughs> I wanted to be doing that, but. I think she was right, actually, because I learnt to actually handle the material and control it. And so when I did start using the wheel, I was much more in control very quickly. But her focus was on on being imaginative. So she would set a topic and you had to make something, whatever you wanted, that was to do with that topic. And you could do anything you liked. Some people made huge things and some people made really tiny things. And the focus was very much on identifying who you were in the sense of scale and what sort of things you were interested in. And she started me looking at, at doing research about things I liked. I'd worked in that way in science and music, but I'd never worked in that way or thought in that way about objects. And I started to look at things in a completely different way. The first thing I made in her class was a, a chicken, <laughs> a hand-built chicken. Um, it was quite big with a head and it had a sort of chicken's comb on the top. And so I learnt how to structure something and the timing of working with the clay and how to decorate the surface. I actually put lustre on the surface. It it probably took me six months to make the object. A friend of mine has it in in England and I look at it now and think, hmm. (laughs) But it's it's actually quite well proportioned. It's okay as an object. So that was the first thing I made and then then I started throwing and I made pretty awful teapots and, well, I didn't have the skill and understanding in, in order to be able to make them well. At Harrow we did everything you can think of. It was very, very intensive, did all sorts of techniques. We built kilns, made tools and it was a totally immersive experience and I made lots and lots and lots of things. When I left the course I was making very fine teacups and saucers and teapots and things and that that's really how I survived for the next 6 years I think it was and then I when I came to Australia I started to to feel that this was an opportunity to change and I wanted to start firing at higher temperatures and simplify what I was doing basically and so I then started to work with stoneware and porcelain and to manipulate the forms
0: I wanted to ask you how important um, or whether creative, creativity and making were important to your family as you grew up.
1: Well, th- yes, they were in a, in a quiet sort of way. We didn't have a television and our life was, was focused around being at home. Well, the girls, the three girls, we all did knitting and sewing and making things. And, and music was also a very um, prominent activity. We all played music. Um, it was a very busy life, really. we We all read a lot, and it was quiet, but there's a lot of activity.
0: Hmm. and And your early life, um, aside from music and making and creativity, also included science. and I feel that uh, and you did a science degree, and I feel that um, science and music and that creative foundation of your early life hasn't really left you. I mean those things seem to be really important today.
1: Definitely. I think they became the foundations of what has become me. <laughs> the thinking and the, the discipline, the asking questions and exploring things. And I was lucky in every in every one of those areas I was taught by people who were really inventive and exploratory thinkers. So I sort of watched what they did and what they said to me and it, it just built up a sort of way of being really. I approach most things by with a sort of inquisitive um, mind. I like to discover things and I like to try and test out ideas. I like to see what other people have done in that that manner and, and then see the method and try it. I feel like learning is a very important part of me.
0: Visiting your home and studio a couple of years ago, I immediately felt very calm in that space and thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Can you tell us about your studio, what it looks like and how important this
1: space is to your creative process? Um, My studio is made from two old school buildings that came from down the road in Kyneton. And it's a very spacious, lovely place to work now. Lots of windows, look overlooking a creek. I feel very comfortable in there. And what do we see inside the studio? Lots of stuff. <laughs> I've got all all sorts of things. I've got a lot of tools, kilns, and wheels and clay. I often use use a number of wheels at the same time because with porcelain, it's often it's it's very frequently actually better to make something on a, and let it sit and not move it. Because as soon as you move it in any way, th- that you get this sort of ripple response in the body of the clay and maybe that comes out in the firing. So I often throw th- multiple things on multiple wheels and I've found that means I can, make, I can take more risks because I don't have to move the pots. I've also set up a separate area for metalwork and that's got all sorts of metalwork tools and hammers and things that are, w- have in the past been very foreign to me but now becoming familiar. A lot of my tools are, hand, are made by me. They're made out of junk, like old hacksaw blades ground down into make a little sharp knife or a, grate, a little something to sort of almost grate the clay. Sounds like to me that that you're making tools as you're problem solving. So yeah, if you I mean, need something yeah. to,
0: to do a certain thing or to take your work in a new direction, you're making a tool for that as, yeah, as you go. Yeah.
1: yeah. Mm. I mean, I've often stumbled on solutions like I was in England and I went to Stoke-on-Trent and I stayed in the thing called um, the Wedgwood Memorial Home or something like that. And it was a like a bed and breakfast. Anyway, I walked in the door and there was a group of musicians who were Irish or Scottish fiddle players in the living room. One of them put his head round the door and said, I'll come in for a drink when you're settled. So I did and one of them said to me, now, why are you here? What are you doing you know, we're having our little musical camp thing. What are you doing here? And I said, well, I've come here because I want to find out about um, how porcelain factories in the past supported things in the kiln, just to see if there are things that I don't understand because I know that I've seen things that have been made and I can't work out how they were fired because they look like they would fall down in the kiln. So I want to know historically how they're supported. And he said... Oh, that's really funny. I've just finished my PhD on that subject. (laughs) And then he talked to me about it and he said, oh, it's such a shame. There's this one paper that was written that shows the whole history of these um, supports for kill and firing, but it's just not available anymore. And he said, that would be fantastic if you could possibly get a copy of that. He said, I don't think I even have one. Anyway, the next day I went to the museum and in the front foyer there was a table of things for a pound that they were getting rid of and on the top of the pile were two of these copies of this paper. (laughs) And so I bought them both and I posted him one. He couldn't believe it. (laughs) But it's that sort of just luck and coincidence that happens and sometimes, sometimes I don't even know what I'm searching for but keeping my eyes open something comes up and I think, oh, that's interesting. That might solve my problem. It's serendipity, isn't it's it? It's total serendipity. Yeah. It's amazing.
0: I'm interested, Prue, in, you know, you mentioned um, beginning to work with higher temperatures and different types of clay. Can you tell us what kind of
1: knowledge is needed to work with porcelain? Well, porcelain is a very tricky material and I've felt... Uh, at, at Harrow we were allowed to use it in the last term if we um, if we really were desperate, but that wasn't really encouraged because they saw it as a material that you use when you're really a developed maker and the attitude there was that when you finish your course you probably have another 10 years to go before you can really have sort of feel like you know what you're doing and uh, I think that was very accurate with me. What's needed with porcelain is... Um, a sense of that it's always a developing knowledge. That you you start with the material. You have to really feel what the material wants to, to let you do, and then explore that, and gradually, gradually, gradually change the sort of move the edges and change the parameters as you go. But in a way, you have to respect what it's telling you, <laughs> and that's that's the most important important technique, really. I think you have to listen to it. Mm-hmm because it'll tell you what it'll let you do. It's almost like the, the porcelain's mastering you in a way. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's, it, 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 some porcelains just won't allow you to do certain things at all. For me, it's been really interesting to go and look at industries and where they've used porcelain for decades or centuries and see how they've managed it. When I worked in China, there were certain sort of like a library of shapes that they used and you soon realise that there's a reason for that. They've had centuries of seeing what happens with it. Sometimes they're surprised by what somebody achieves or tries to do who's come from outside, but, but often the really important thing is to listen to what they, they're doing, watch what they're doing because they know what the limits are. And there are many, many, many different porcelains and they all have their own qualities.
0: And which particular porcelain do you work with generally?
1: Well, I've been using Limoges porcelain for a long time now. One of the main reasons is that it will allow me to bend it and alter the shape without cracking. It allows me to to do what I want to do, but it also, I know that the supply is going to be meticulously regular, that because they're supplying large industries, they can't afford to change the clay and they have teams of chemists to make sure that, that the clay is always consistent. And then I also have a supply of Chinese porcelain that I use, but it it's not really meant for throwing. It's very, very hard to use on the wheel, and so it limits what I can do. You spent quite
0: a bit of time in China. Tell us a little more about the oh, your most recent experience.
1: Well, I went. I went to China because Takashi Yasuda said to me, "You, you should come." You know, he he was working in Jindachen, and I've had contact with him over many years. And he used to say to me, "Why, why haven't you come? You should come." And he said. If you don't come soon, it'll be too late. And he he went there about 20 years ago and they said to him, oh, you've come now, it's too late (laughs) because it's changing so rapidly. But it wasn't too late when I went. It's just in the most amazing place. You see things you can't believe, you know, big, 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 big tiles that are four metres by one metre wide or one and a half metres wide. I would have thought that was an impossibility. They roll them with big rollers by hand people make huge pots, bigger than I, I can't reach the rim of the pot standing next to it. It's, it's not just the big things, it's very fine work too, incredibly skilled things that I wouldn't have believed to be possible. It's quite rough really, the, the place where you work, it's just like people's, people in tiny little garage spaces open to the street, working with the most incredible skill. It's it's fantastic and they're, they're willing to teach you things. If you, if you show interest, they'll show you things. They're lovely.
2: Who's a great teacher and I think she's had a significant impact on a, a lot of successful students.
0: Neville French is an internationally acclaimed Australian ceramic artist and educator with over 40 years
2: practice. the type of work that Prue makes, you know, you need deep learning and sequential learning. That's the kind of thing that she taught. It's very good for students to have role models of people that make distinctive work. I think that the the lesson in Prue's work is that people need to follow their own direction. She makes work that's highly um, evolved, beautiful in its material qualities, innovative in its design really a great mentor.
0: What do you think is the most challenging aspect of making a career as an artist for
1: new makers today? The hardest thing is accepting it's something in yourself that needs that and then just doing it. So many times I've met people who've said, oh, I really want to do this but everyone tells me that it's, you know, you can't make a living or you can't do this or you shouldn't or you should do something more reliable or, you know, Mm. it's often the parental voice talking. I always say you have one life. You must do what you feel you have to and you'll find a way. If it's the right thing to be doing, you'll find ways. It's not necessarily going to be easy. I don't think it is an easy path, but then many paths aren't easy. I completely,
0: completely can see that and you know i think that sticking to the path you know finding out what it is you're really passionate about following that through but also being open to the different directions that it might take you in
1: well you don't know the directions arrive that's right and so you need to keep your eyes open if you want to do something you've got to make sure that you do it well and you have to do a lot of work my advice is to always try and do the best work you can And to learn to be really discriminating and not to keep everything, and to look widely around you and experiment. And one contentious thing is to not ever use social media as your reference material because the world is so much bigger than that. And also, I mean, this is also very contentious don't sell your work until it's really well established. If you want to be a really good maker and build a reputation, your work, don't start selling right at the beginning. Everybody, when they first make things, they think, "Oh, wow, I made that. This is great." But a lot of people are selling within the first year or something. I was lucky at Harrow in that we weren't allowed to sell anything. Um, it would have meant immediate expulsion. Nobody ever did. Nobody ever tried because when when you start selling, you cut back on your learning. I remember Gwyn hanson Pickett used to say, if you're thinking about selling all the time that you're making, there's a part of your work that'll look like the gas bill.
2: When Prue started teaching in Ballarat, she used to stay with my family here in Ballarat, so we had a lot of time to to talk about things and I was always interested in Gwyn Hanson-Pickock's work and I had a number of pieces of her work here. I ended up organising a residency for Gwyn at the school. So we did spend quite a bit of time with Gwyn and I guess the common interest that we all had was in the importance and the beauty of handmade tableware. She was a mentor for us both.
0: So Prue, you clearly have a long list of accomplishments and your work is in many significant collections. You have a national and interna- international reputation as one of Australia's leading contemporary ceramic artists. Is there one thing that stands out from all that you've achieved for you?
1: Well, this this exhibition has been very important to me, the the living treasures. And I think it's very important on a number of fronts. It's enabled me to have to produce a large body of work that that looks at lots of things and en- enabled me to incorporate metal much more much more strongly in my work and present it publicly one of the key things is that it it's work by a person who makes functional objects and that that's very unusual to have an exhibition like this the other thing that was really a key uh, achievement for me was when i won the Fletcher challenge competition in new zealand i Almost didn't send the work because I sent three very tiny jugs, some of the smallest pieces I've ever made, well under 10 centimetres tall. They were really tiny and they were so small. As I packed them up, I thought, well, it's not a lot of point to this. (laughs) Fortunately for me, Takashi Yasuda was the judge. Takashi said he just walked past them. He didn't notice them to start with. They were so small And most of the work in the competition was huge, you know, huge sort of almost life-size figures of animals and absolutely extraordinary work, actually. There's a fantastic contemporary ceramics world in New Zealand. And he said that he wandered around the exhibition for a few days and he sort of didn't notice my work to start with. And then when he did, he realised they were very complex and... Anyway, he awarded the first prize, and it was after that that people started to notice what I was doing. Before that, I used to send photographs away to all sorts of exhibitions and competitions and in Australia, and nobody noticed or <laughs> was always rejected. And I think that was a really key thing for me to win that. Some people were absolutely horrified because, again, it was this thing of functional work winning a big prize. They thought this was terrible, that really something that was more seen as part of the art world should have won it. And he said that there was something about the work. He said he'd always taken black, drunk black coffee, but this made him think he might take milk because he thought using these jugs would change something. He still doesn't take milk, but (laughs) I think it made me realise too, his comments made me realise more strongly that functional objects can actually change your life. They can change your thinking. They can alter how you feel. They're very key things in our lives and they're often ignored. Lots of people talk about functional things as being insignificant, but I don't think they are. I think they're very important in our lives. The exhibition is now about halfway
0: through, but do you have a sense of what impact it has had
1: for you and for our audiences and um, ceramics community? It's had a a big impact for me. I mean, when it was in Bendigo up the road from me, lots of people in town said, oh, that's what you do in your studio. Because, I mean, I'm actually a very quiet person. A lot of people didn't know what I did at all. Um, Or they knew I made pots, but they didn't know really what I did. It has a very important role to play for anybody who wants to make functional things. It provides good encouragement that you can actually do that and you can treat that as your serious work, that you don't have to make something else and then do functional things as an aside. And I think that's a major, major thing that it, it does for the ceramics community. It demonstrates how long it takes to make things. It was really four years of work. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it lets people know, in a way, how much work you do as a maker if you're really committed to it. It's a lifetime of intense focus, really.
0: That was Prue Venables, the ninth living treasure Master of Australian Craft, speaking with me, Lisa Carl. What really stood out for me was Prue's commitment to making work that belonged to her, as she puts it. And the challenge of doing that, that it's not always easy to keep making work that's yours. Like when she almost didn't enter her tiny jugs into the Fletcher Challenge ceramics competition, but then won. Other food for thought was not using social media for reference material and not selling your work too early. You can peek inside Pru's studio in a short film that's on our show notes. Go to australiandesigncentre.com podcast. In the next episode of Object, you'll meet master jeweller Marion Hosking.
1: In fine art terms, being sentimental or a souvenir is often a derogatory term. What I do is both souvenir and sentimental and I really value both both of those aspects of
0: my making. If you've enjoyed this episode of Object, please tell your friends to listen and your colleagues and anyone you know who loves contemporary craft and design. Object is a podcast by the Australian Design Centre. The Gadigal people of the Eora Nation are the traditional custodians of this place we now call Sydney, where the Australian Design Centre is located and where this podcast was made. We'd like to thank the Australia Council for the Arts for funding support for OBJECT. You can follow the Australian Design Centre on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. OBJECT is produced by Jane Curtis in collaboration with Lisa Carl and Alex Fiveash. Thank you for listening.